When God's plan is counterintuitive to our expectations. This morning we embark on John's story of Lazarus and his two sisters. They lived in the town of Bethany. It was, it was located about two miles from Jerusalem. Only two miles. It was on the road to Jericho. If you were traveling from Jerusalem to Bethany, you would travel east, you would enter Bethany. We assume by the opening words of this chapter that Jesus had a close relationship with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. There was dinner and there was teaching. It makes sense that their main appearance in the Gospels is recorded in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their Gospels are centered in the northern province in Galilee. That's where most of their Gospels spend most of their time. John's gospel, his focus is on the ministry of Jesus in and around Jerusalem, in the southern province of Judea. That was where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived. At the end of chapter 10, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, we read it, we saw it last week, were seeking to arrest Jesus. They were seeking to stone Jesus for blasphemy. Jesus left Jerusalem to get away from that constant confrontation and traveled east across the Jordan River to a remote place. It was where John the Baptist had centered his ministry, a remote area. Jesus was teaching there. The crowds followed him there. While he's there, a messenger arrives from Martha and Mary announcing that Lazarus is ill. Now, what do we do when a member of our family is seriously ill? What do we do? You think I'm going to say we pray. No, that's not the first thing we do. We call a doctor. That's not what Mary and Martha were doing in sending a messenger to Jesus. They they weren't calling a medical doctor. In the remaining part of this chapter, we see that they were a well-known, prominent family in Judea, in the Jerusalem area. They would have brought in a local doctor to care for him physically. Now, in sending this messenger to Jesus, they were confessing their faith. They were doing exactly what we do after we enlist medical care. What do we do? We pray. We call our friends and say, you need to pray for us. We call ministers, brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to pray for us. That's what this note was. This note, this message 
the man you love is ill. He just wasn't making an announcement. They were asking for help. It was a prayer. They knew Jesus had healed the sick. That news was all over Israel. We've seen that. Jesus, they knew. They knew individual people who had been deathly ill with fever. Jesus had healed them on the spot. Not by medical treatment, by command. He had made the blind to see and the deaf to So they sent a prayer to Jesus. Come, heal our brother. You don't even have to come. You can speak from there and heal our brother. What did Martha and Mary say when Jesus got there four days after Lazarus died? We'll see it next week in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They were expecting him to come. They were expecting him to heal. So this was indeed a prayer like we would pray when a loved one is sick. But folks, you're not going to believe what we can learn from this prayer and how Jesus answered it. First, I want you to notice the basis for their prayer. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Notice they did not say, the one who loves you is ill. They didn't say, the one who has provided hospitality in his home, in his house for you. Many well-meaning Christians will say in their prayers for a hurting friend, God, you know how much. I've said this. God, you know how much this person loves you. You know how this person has served you. That's really not a good basis for prayer. Our love or service to him will never, ever make us discerning. Remember the prayer of the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke 18? God, look how good I am. Look how I serve you. I'm deserving of your care. I'm deserving of your attention. I'm amused sometimes. I'll ask a person that I know is a Christian if uh, when they have a problem, facing something, I'll ask them, I said, have you prayed? You know, we say all too easily, you know, I've prayed about this. And if we carefully look at it, we really hadn't prayed about it. And so I'll ask the question, have you seriously, have you really prayed about this? And sometimes the person will say, John, I, I hate to say this, but I can't pray that prayer right now because of the way I've been living. I don't feel worthy to ask the Lord about this. What's the answer to that? I tell them, let me get this straight. Somehow, if you had been living a little differently, you think that would make you deserving? Is that what you're saying?
People, we should strive toward holiness. But we should never make God's blessing be dependent upon being deserving. Luther, I've got a book of Luther's prayers, and he, he was impulsive. And you can see it in his prayers. And he had a problem. And he started the prayer by saying, Lord, it's not the time to ask me if I've been good. It's the time to help. I need help. Look at David's prayer in Psalm 51, 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to how well I have served you. No. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You know, Mary and Martha got that, got that part of their prayer right. The one you love, Jesus, is ill. It's a basis for their prayer. It's a basis for our prayer. Secondly, Look at this and see Jesus' unique perception of the situation. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, first, Jesus seems to make an erroneous statement. He says, this illness does not lead to death. Well, you know the rest of the story. You know Lazarus dies from this illness. Why did Jesus say this does not lead to his death? Well, Jesus already knew what he was going to say. This happened several times. John comments several times just before a miracle and says, Jesus already knew what he would do. And it was, John included what Jesus said to make that point. It was a perception that only Jesus could have. Jesus knew <clears throat> that this would, that, that it would end Excuse me. <coughs> I hate to call the microphone off. It's terrible. <clears throat> Jesus knew. Now, Lazarus is going to die, <clears throat> but I'm going to raise him from the dead. It's not going to end in death. It's not. So it's not an erroneous statement. It's a true statement. But there's another unique perception here. The illness does not lead to death. This illness is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. Jesus was looking at a serious illness. He was looking at Lazarus' death. And he said, this illness, this death, is for a reason. And what's the reason? For God to be 
glorified. For God to receive glory. He has said this before. Remember the blind man in John 9? And the disciples, when they came across him, said, This man has been blind since birth. Who sinned? Did he sin or his parents? Is that the reason for the blindness? And Jesus said, the blindness was not because the parents had sinned, not because this man sinned. The blindness is here so that God would be glorified, so that the Son of God would be glorified. You think about it. Come back to Lazarus. If Jesus had merely healed him of this illness, well, he does that just about on every page of the gospel, doesn't he? Kills people. What makes this one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture? Jesus did not heal him. Jesus raised him from the dead. That rocked the world. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were never the same again. How how different would our lives look if we began to look at every dire circumstance in our life with this incredible perception? How will this bring glory to God? You can ask about anything. That's what we're supposed to ask about everything in our lives. How will my washing dishes bring glory to God? How will the game I'm playing tonight, the football game I'm playing, how will that bring glory to God? How going to work today, how will that bring glory to God? It's not just as we gather on Sunday that our lives are to be in praise to God. We want everything about our, the Bible tells us, everything about our lives should bring glory to God. When I was writing this, I thought about an old friend. When I was a very young minister, uh, even before I went into the ministry, uh, I knew a man, a minister in Hayside, Virginia. Let me ask a question. Does anyone here know where Hayside, Virginia is? If you do, raise your hand. Okay. I would expect that. It's on the back side of the world. You cannot get there from here. It's deep in the mountains and coal fields of Virginia. This Elihu Anderson was a school teacher. But he loved the Bible, he loved Scripture, and they didn't have a minister in this tiny little Presbyterian church. And so he began to teach, and then he began to preach. The local presbytery finally ordained, he didn't go to seminary. They ordained him into the ministry to serve that church, and he served there for decades, all of his life. When he stepped down because of age and infirmities, he remained in this in this remote parish that was so precious to him. 
When he suffered from heart failure and other age-related illnesses, he would be taken by ambulance on a wicked, horrible mountain road. It was only about 35 or 40 miles, but it would be a two-hour trip. His roads were so bad in mountains. And he would be in the hospital in Richlands, Virginia. This happened over and over and over and over again. I'm sure that Elihu, I'm sure that Elihu's family said, why? Why is this going on? I'm sure that he said, I'm ready to go home. Why is this happening? And then his children and grandchildren, and we talked about this, realized that lives were changed every time he made that trip. Every time there'd be a different ambulance driver, different technicians, different people today we call EMTs, there would be different people taking him. And you couldn't be around that man without seeing Christ, without being drawn. Doctors and nurses. There were literally over two or three year period, there were literally dozens of people that became Christians just being around him when he was so sick and so fragile. I think Elihu Anderson had the perception of Jesus in his personal trials. He was asking, how is this going to redound to the glory of Christ? Got it right. Notice in this the basis for their prayer. Notice Jesus' unique perception. Notice, thirdly, that Jesus' actions are opposite of our expectations. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's not what you expect to read. You expect to read, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus so much that he left immediately. You expect him to say to the disciples, we must get to Bethany as quickly as possible. Our dear friend Lazarus needs it. We expect him to make the journey, two-day journey, quicker because he's going to walk all night. He's not going to stop to rest. It's, it's, it's a matter Look at He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And for that reason, he stayed two days longer where he was. With friends like that? (laughs) So why did he do that? John answers it. Because he loved them. Because he loved them. That's a strange kind of love. Because he stayed, because he loved them this way, something incredible, something awesome 
was going to happen to that family. He gave them a great gift because he loved them by staying where he was. We see it all through Scripture. In the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes of some type of physical malady that was so bothersome that he called it a thorn in the flesh. Just imagine having a thorn stuck into you, and it's there. There's nothing you can do. That's what he, he said it was like. He hated it. He prayed intensely. This was an apostle that prayed for others, and they were healed. And he prayed intensely that God would heal him. We read the word there is in, in 2 Corinthians 12. The word is pleaded. Imagine that. Paul pleaded with his father. Heal me. Take away this thorn. But God told him that he would not remove the thorn. Because that thorn Paul needed. God had given it to him to keep him from being spiritually conceited. That thorn caused Paul to be more dependent upon God and God's strength. You see, he was more interested in Paul's holiness than he was in Paul's comfort. Why did God allow the thorn? He allowed the thorn because he loved Do you hear this? You need to hear this. We need to hear this. Because all of us are going to be in these situations where we say, where's God in this? You know, you can just see Martha and Mary going out to the edge of their property and looking down the road and then certainly Jesus is going to come. What did they say when he arrived? Where have you been? They were looking. And what do we do? We get in situations like this and we say, where? Where's the Lord in this? Where's God in this? Notice the basis for their prayer. Jesus' unique perspective. Jesus' actions are opposite. Of their expectation, expectations, we're going to find Jesus' actions are opposite of our expectations. They seem counterintuitive. Fourthly, Jesus' actions seem to be dangerous for his own well-being. Look at verse seven. Then after he said, then after this, he said to the disciples, "Let us go to Judea again." The disciples said to him, "Rabbi, the Jews were." The, the, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Well, there are not twelve hours in the day. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Now we talked about that. The Sanhedrin, when it says the Jews, it's, it's ta they're talking about the leader, the leaders of Israel, the authorities, the governing authorities. 
had sought to arrest him, sought to stone him. This is too dangerous for you, Jesus. When I read those words this week, I, I just stopped and, and I had to laugh. They were talking. When they said that to Jesus, they were talking to the Son of God. who had left the glory of heaven in the incarnation, had left the glory of heaven to come to a rebellious dark world to die an awful death on a cruel cross. That, that's, to whom, that, that's the person to whom they were speaking. The decision had already been made in eternity past. He would be killed, but it would be by his plan not theirs. Not the Sanhedrin. It's not the Romans. We've already seen that. And here they were worried about Jesus leaving this remote area <clears throat> and going back to Jerusalem for fear of the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> so what did Jesus say to them? In their culture, a day, 24-hour day, was split into two 12-hour sections. 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of darkness. This was an agrarian culture. They could work in the fields and vineyards while it was daylight. When night came, they couldn't work in the fields. He was saying to the disciples, it's still daylight, guys. He was saying, talking about daylight being his time here, saying it's still daylight. I haven't finished my mission yet. I still have work to do. He's also saying, I know what I'm doing. I'm walking in the light. He, they needed to be reminded of what he had said just a few days earlier. When he said, <clears throat> I lay down my life. No one, no one, no one has the power to take it from me. <clears throat> Now, do you see it? All through the opening verses of this chapter, what Jesus does, what Jesus says seems counterintuitive to expectations. <clears throat> Notice the basis for their prayer. Jesus' unique perspective. Jesus' actions are opposite of our expectations. Jesus' actions seem to be dangerous to his own well-being. Finally, fifthly, Jesus' words are opposite the disciples' expectations. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. That, look at that. Do you see it? Lazarus died and I'm glad he did. How can he say that? Because he knew 
what he was about to do. He was about to restore Lazarus to Mary and Martha. He was about to show the disciples the greatest feat that they had seen up to that point. He was about to take their faith to the next level. With everything they had seen him do, this would be the greatest demonstration of his true identity. He was the Lord from glory. He was the Prince of Heaven. This would be the greatest demonstration to this point of his omnipotence. All his other miracles paled in comparison. He could say this. I'm glad this happened. Because he had a different perspective than the disciples. This is the reason for this message. If we learn to have the perspective of Jesus, it will change how we live in the most detailed way in our lives. It will change the way we live through delightful, wonderful times. It will change the way we live through the dire and darkest days. Living, focused, how will this day, no matter how dark it is, How will it bring glory to God? No matter how wonderful it is, how will it bring glory to God? Through the death of Lazarus, they learned indeed the truth of Jesus' statement, that he was glad he was not there to stop it. What if right now we were, you were, taken back through time to Golgotha, to the crucifixion of Jesus? He's gone. Physically dead. His body is still on the cross. The Apostle John was there. All the disciples, including John, were crushed. They're distraught. They're ready to desert. To abandon their faith that he is the Messiah. Messiahs don't die on crosses. What would you say to them? You'd say, I wish I could make you understand. I look upon that cross. I look at my Savior on that cross as the greatest, most beautiful sight. I've ever seen. And soon you'll look at it that way too. 
The crucified Christ is my salvation. The cross of Christ has become a thing of incredible beauty, incredible power. That's what we would say to them. We're all people, we're all going to be in places where we're crushed. Dark, dark days. I've been there, and so have you, most of you. We're going to be there. And we're going to say, Where is he? Do you mean this is really, you're almost mockingly going to say, you mean this is going to redound to the glory of God? People, if the death of the Son of God and the Son of Man at Calvary, a dark so day that it shook the earth, if that day God can turn into a thing of beauty and power, He'll take that dark day in your life. And he promised it in Romans. All things work together for good to those that love God. Because he's the father. And he has it in his hand.